Welcome to the 324th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk about poetry in the pandemic with Nisha Patel, the eighth poet laureate of Edmonton, Canada. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at its new time of 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, August 18th, 2021, there are 4,384,515 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Rather than continuing to read so many of the COVID death numbers as I have in the past few months, numbers which now strike me as inaccurate and not a good way to visualize the suffering of the disaster, I'm going to continue raising different COVID measures that I'd like to know about in addition to the death totals. I, I put out the call yesterday for COVID numbers that people would like to know, and I got a great response to that call. In fact, I'm still getting responses to that. Here's a number that Professor Professor Dora Varga, who's been a COVID calls guest, would like to know. How have the numbers of other major infectious diseases changed in the last year and a half, including HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria globally? Has COVID had an effect on them, for example, because of lack of preventative measures or access to treatment? Those are numbers that we should know. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Chucky Thompson, hit-making producer is dead at 53. This was written by Neil Genslinger and published August 17, 2021 in the New York Times. My mind is always on record. The producer, Chucky e. Thompson, once told an interviewer, explaining how he was able to bring such a wide range of musical influences to the hits he helped create for Mary J. Blige, the notorious B.I.G., Nas, and other stars. For any particular track, he might draw on the soul records his parents used to play, or his time as a conga player in Chuck Brown's go-go band, or some other style in his mental archive as he sought to realize the vision the performer was after, or perhaps take him or her in a whole different direction. Mr. Thompson helped forge the hip-hop and R&B sound of the 1990s while in his mid-20s. He showed his versatility with his work on Miss Blige's second album, My Life, and the Notorious B.I.G.'s debut, Ready to Die, both released in 1994. The next year, he was a producer on almost all the tracks on Faith Evans's debut, Faith, another hit. In this period, he was working for Bad Boy Entertainment, the influential label Sean Diddy Combs, founded in 1993 as part of the producing team known as the Hitmen. But he continued to produce for a range of artists after the Hitmen dissolved later in the 1990s. 
If he, unlike some other producers in those years, defied categorization, that was deliberate. My brain, as a producer, I never wanted a sound, he said in a 2013 video interview with Rahman Kilpatrick. That's why you hear me on so many different records. Mr. Thompson died on August 9th in a hospital in the Los Angeles area. He was 53. His publicist, Tamar Judah, said the cause was COVID-19. Mr. Thompson was different from many of his contemporaries in that he was a multi-instrumentalist, often contributing guitar, piano, trombone, or other flourishes to the tracks he produced. To get a particular effect for the 2002 Nas track, One Mic, he flipped a guitar over and banged on the back of it. He's a true musician and doesn't like to program heavily, just like me, Mr. Combs told Billboard in 1995, when that publication included Mr. Thompson in an article on the next crop of hotshot producers. Chucky has so many melodies in his head and produces from the heart, he said. Carl Edward Thompson Jr. was born on July 12, 1968 in Washington to Carl and Charlotte Thompson. In the 2013 interview, he said that his mother recognized his innate musical ability early. She used to sit me in the kitchen and, you know how kids would just be banging and making noise. I was actually on beat with it, he said. She knew from there that something was different. At 16, he was touring with Mr. Brown and his band, The Soul Searchers, playing the funk variant known as Go-Go, which was popular in and around Washington. It was a time when traditional live performances by bands were losing ground to DJs who could keep the music constant rather than breaking between songs and thus keep people on the dance floor. Mr. Brown had his young conga player try to compensate. He decided, I'll put a percussion break in between songs, Mr. Thompson told Rolling Stone in June. So we would finish the song, then I'd do a percussion break and do a call and response, ask the crowd, y'all tired yet? By the early 1990s, he was in New York trying to market himself as a producer, and Mr. Combs and Miss Blige were looking for material for the follow-up to her successful first album, What's the 411, which appeared in 1992. She picked my song out of a ton of tracks from new and previous producers, Mr. Thompson said, in an interview with the website stupiddope.com in June. I was truly honored. That track was Be With You, and at that time, it was very different for her and her sound. I felt at that moment we were onto something that would be special. He ended up co-producing much of the album with Miss Blige and Mr. Combs. Miss Blige had a tough hip-hop image that defied female singer stereotypes, and some people didn't care for it. Mr. Thompson took that reaction into account as he helped create the songs for her second album. I didn't like people throwing stones at something they didn't understand, he told Rolling Stone. So I was like, on this record, people are going to know you're a singer. You're the real deal. My Life, full of confessional songs exploring Miss Blige's personal struggles, received a Grammy nomination for Best R&B Album and helped establish her as a star. In June, Amazon Prime unveiled a documentary about her career and the record Mary J. Blige's My Life. Over the years, Mr. Thompson also produced for Usher, Raheem Devon, Total, and many others. He produced some of the final tracks for his early mentor, Mr. Brown, who died in 2012 at 75. Mr. Thompson's survivors include five children, Ashley, Emil, Miles, Quincy, and Trey Thompson. The headline was, Chucky Thompson, hit-making producer is dead at 53.
Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Nisha Patel. Nisha Patel is an award-winning queer and disabled artist. She was the City of Edmonton's eighth Poet Laureate and the 2019 Canadian Individual Slam Champion. She's a recipient of the Edmonton Artists Trust Fund Award and the University of Alberta Alumni Award of Excellence. Her debut collection, Coconut, is available now at Glass Bookshop, and you can find her at nishapatel.ca. Nisha Patel, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Yeah, happy to be here. Usually do just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there. Yeah, uh, here in Edmonton, uh, Alberta, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of consider this province um, the Texas of Canada. You know, we have a lot of folks who are who are really into like, you know, the anti anti vax movement and the anti mask movement and stuff like that. Um, so there we're kind of in like this really divided place when it comes to the COVID response. On the one hand, you know, we have government and advocates really trying to keep the pandemic under control. But on the other hand, we've also had a lot of people argue for a lack of restrictions. And this has actually caused our case numbers to really fluctuate all over the place, right? We, we've had, um, you know, some measures put in place. And I think now we're one of the first places in the world to potentially get rid of almost all pandemic measures by the time we go into the fall this year, which is a very terrifying thing for me um, as a disabled person and a chronically ill person. Um, at the same time, we also have vaccine appointments going unused. There is a whole swath of people who haven't been vaccinated, who are choosing not to be vaccinated. And again, like there is just, there's more supply than there is demand in a place like this. Um, there's of course, you know, as there are with, you know, provinces or states that, that have this kind of character pockets of, you know, liberalism or pockets of folks that are, you know, on, on other sides of the political spectrum and not to get too much into politics. There's all sorts of folks who live here. There's a lot of new immigrants. There's a lot of young families, especially in my city. Um, there's a lot of young people in positions of power politically as well as in organizations and I feel like there's always tension going around but we are a younger city we are an entrepreneurial city we have a lot of strength in our in our business sectors we have a lot of strength in our nonprofits who have had to really rise to the occasion in the last you know 12 16 months especially well thank you for that snapshot of what it looks like there how how does that tension manifest itself? You know, in other parts in, in the United States, for example, people take to the streets to protest mask wearing or, um, you know, anti-vaccination protests at school board meetings. And those get a lot of media coverage because the, it's a friction that's that's mm -hmm. visible. Um, and of course, it runs a lot deeper than that. What does that kind of tension look like there in Edmonton? Yeah, I think it's very similar. But I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that kind of take um take their examples from the states and you see these like microcosms of conflicts that happen in the u.s and get publicized and get you know media play and attention and they happen here too you know we have smaller protests we have smaller rallies you know we also had responses such as large rallies to the blm movement making its way across canada and you know we've had protests in favor of that since 2014 for instance which is really important to note as well but it happens on like a different scale for for the most part, just because we are a city that is a lot smaller. Um, at the same time, you know, because of 
the nature of the population of the city being young, being so many newcomers, so many immigrants, not a lot of old money or wealth. I think that flows through, you know, uh, through industry here. We have a lot of people who are really trying to set out and start start new things as they as they see or start new families, start new lives here. And so we have huge numbers of immigrants who are populating every neighborhood of the city. We have young people returning home because they've been priced out of places like Toronto or Vancouver, um, all these big, you know, metropolitan centers in Canada who are now returning here. We have, you know, a, a very typical housing crisis for this point and, you know, the, the post-war era and the neoliberal era and the post-social security net era kind of thing. And there's all these things that are happening that I think a lot of major cities are reckoning with, right? How do we get services to people in need? Uh, you know, how do we continue to ensure that like white supremacy doesn't overrun institutions? How do we ensure that not just black folks, but especially in Canada, indigenous folks get the care they need? How do we give land back? You know, like these are all tensions that have always run through the city, but are now coming to light, I think, because of the way that media has really played a role in COVID coverage and um, the way that COVID has exacerbated many of these issues that usually only advocates were really on the ground for. Has, uh, in Alberta, has COVID hit Indigenous populations harder than non-Indigenous, or has it been a, a, a struggle there? It's certainly been the case in the United States. Yeah, so in many places in Alberta, uh, the vaccine was made available to Indigenous populations earlier. Um, as you know, there are a number of treaties that were signed with different Indigenous nations in Canada, and some of those treaty obligations are to provide safety during um crisis during health crises. And so, you know, the government did make these things available because many Indigenous populations are further at risk of, of getting COVID, but other um, disease and other health issues. Uh, I think that all, all loss in these communities is felt so heavily because there were, there are communities that lost, you know, language, um, language matriarchs and people who hold history and oral history and elders and stuff like that. And so, you know, like some of that knowledge is gone now forever. And I think in many ways, um, even with the prioritization of the vaccines to some of these communities, there was still a lot of folks that are distrustful of the government, right? Because here in Canada, you know, as we continue to uncover genocidal history, we know that the government used to conduct experiments, especially medical experiments on children and on Indigenous peoples. And so there is like a genuine and I think very potent mistrust of, of government efforts to to even provide something like vaccinations. Let me ask if I can a little bit about your own experience. I wonder if you'd be willing to share a memory or two of this last 18 months around the pandemic that's um, really resonant for you, some, some image that really still comes to you. Yeah, I think that for me, there was a moment where I had gone many weeks inside of my own apartment. I was very lucky to be able to transition to working from home. That in itself was a privilege. Um, I had the privilege of being with my partner in our in our apartment, and that in itself really helped with the the loneliness that came to some people. And one of the first things that I allowed myself to do when I returned to after I was vaccinated and my family had been vaccinated, for instance, was that I hugged my mother and I have like a kind of like a 
I've had like a long history of sometimes being very against that kind of physical touch from a lot of people in my life. You know, I've been really standoffish before. And, you know, after we were both fully vaccinated, I, I gave her this like first hug in over a year. And that physical sensation was something that I think lives in like my skin. Like I just, I don't think I'll ever forget what it felt like to be embraced by someone again in the pandemic. Um, thank you for sharing that. I, I think that so many people can connect can connect with that. And uh, those of us, I mean, I haven't seen my own family, a, a lot of them, extended family in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, almost two years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so just hearing you talk about that, it feels good. Uh, yeah. Just the way you, you described it. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, I want to get some background. We're going to talk about your your poetry in, um, in detail, but I mean, you must get asked this question a lot. But how? When did you know you were a writer? You know, it's such a funny story. I I wrote a little bit when I was a younger teenager, kind of like that preteen, early teen stage, and it became clear to me from people around me that like writing was not financially viable. And so I quit writing for probably like 10 years, which a lot of that was like me being young, me being in high school and university and stuff like that. Um, and I revisited it as an adult who had left university behind and really felt this like void in my life of what do I do now without these like, you know, typical social arrangements and friends who live within walking distance and all of that. And I turned to poetry after seeing some poets and I was like, I think I could be good at this. Not just that I wanted to do it, but I thought I'm like, I think I could be genuinely good at this. Um, and I'll tell you, those first years were rough. Like there were a lot of not good moments, um, but I eventually took what I started as like kind of a hobby thing that I did um, to embrace kind of the community that had grown around performance poetry and writing. Uh, and then I transitioned into kind of a career in the arts where I both get to perform, um, you know, as often as possible and in different venues and spheres and for different audiences. But I also have a, a practice within the nonprofit artistic world. So that moment of uh, sort of a, a commitment, like this is going to be your life, that's a really brave moment for <laughs> artists. And uh, uh, thanks for sharing that. I mean, you know, I, don't, I guess it didn't come to you all at once, but to then go from there to be poet laureate of a major city and teaching and everything that you do, I mean, um, that's like such a, I don't know how to even describe it, like what an aha moment to realize that that's what you are. Yeah, I think it's um, it's really funny because I did have like a, a, a very genuine and very specific aha moment where I was like, you know what, I, I need to do this for myself. And sometimes these realizations come slowly or they come as a product of the right opportunities falling the right way. But, you know, I was... I was very ill. I was traveling. I was doing a show in Berlin where I was getting paid, I think, about 50 euros, which is still a pretty good rate for some poets, you know, um, which, of course, didn't cover the cost of traveling so, there or the cost of accommodation. I was going to say, that's, that's yeah. about a half of a small hotel room in Berlin. <laughs> yeah, <for one> exactly. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I want to do these shows and I'm going to I'm going to go to Europe and I'm going to tour Europe. And instead, I did like 
four or five shows and I called it a tour um, and I, I spent a lot of money on it. And so I, I was in this show and I just had this moment where I was surrounded by folks from all sorts of countries, right? Because Berlin is a very metropolitan city with tons of people, very international in nature and people from different language backgrounds who were sharing in the English part of spoken word. And we were brought together, I think in that moment, these people in this room from all over the place whose histories I would never learn. And I just had this really profound moment of where I was like, I think some people are given the opportunity to do something they love and also be you know, good at it or proficient at it um, or feel spiritually rewarded for it. And I think now that I know what it is, now that I know that it's poetry, I will be denying myself if I do something else with my life. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking to a poet and teacher, Nisha Patel. And so Nisha, can you tell us about the path then to becoming the eighth poet laureate of Edmonton? Yeah, you know, it's so it's so interesting. A lot of really big cities have poet laureates who are essentially individuals who are either hired or selected from council or arts boards or, you know, other parts of the organization to represent, you know, the life of the city through literature, to reflect on it, to bring people together through art. And I think one of the most famous poet laureates now of all time is Amanda Gorman, you know, the former youth poet laureate of the United States who captivated and continues to captivate, like not just her nation, but many nations all over the world. And so poet laureates have existed in some cases for, for many, many years. And Amanda, like me, we come after hours and hours of advocacy and work in the arts of those that came before us. You know, we both owe a lot to the people who have come before. In my case, there were seven poet laureates in the city of Edmonton who all laid the foundation for someone like me to be able to go into poetry. And I think for me, especially here in the city of Edmonton, this is a role that is not a reward for hard work. You know, it's not an accolade given or a title bestowed on someone. It's very much a position in which you are an active participant in building, uh, you know, around yourself, building relationships, building poems, building story and history. And so in the city of Edmonton, this position is often afforded to people who have that capacity to build and not just people who have a long established history. And I think it's very interesting because, you know, some of those early years where I was out in the out in the community trying to grind and make my way as a successful poet, there were many moments where I was like, I questioned, you know, how viable this was going to be. And being in a position where that effort was being witnessed and paid off was really important for me. And then, of course, like, I spent most of those two years as poet laureate in a pandemic, you know, and I couldn't have predicted that, um, you know. And we, I took it, I took it in stride as as I should have done. There's nothing else I think we could have changed about that. And I continued to do my work as poet laureate um, from my from my living room essentially. It's amazing. It's a. It's just amazing. I mean, you just finished your your term as poet laureate earlier in the summer. You were telling me before we started. So. So almost the entirety of your time, I guess you had a few months before the pandemic had really started to try to make sense of mm -hmm. the responsibilities and the work. And, and there's a lot. I, I was looking through your, your website. I mean, you were expected to teach and have um, intensive workshops and create. And there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and then the pandemic hits. And I guess you move all those activities into your, into your living room. 
yeah, you know, it's, um, like I said, I had a huge privilege to be able to work from home. Um, I had the ability to put in a setup and get the equipment and stuff to make that viable. And ironically, in some ways, uh, being able to be in this position made being disabled a little bit easier, you know, being um, someone who has multiple health issues, suddenly the world became both smaller, but also more accessible, because I was able to react to my body's daily needs, you know, through the guise of being in the comfort of my own home, as well as react to my very real and very demanding jobs. You know, I was often working two, three, at some points, even four contracts at, at a given time, um, you know, just trying to make it through the pandemic. Uh, a lot of artists, you know, have what uh, my friend in business calls lumpy income, you know, so there's periods of kind of uh, stability and, and, and uh, prosperity, and then there's periods of kind of downturn. And managing that in itself, like managing kind of like a financial roller coaster can be really tough. And as soon as the pandemic hit, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. I perform for a living. Like what is what's going to move online? What isn't? Can that even be done? And, you know, like March 2020 was a very different year than March 2021, at which point, you know, we had established, yes, we are going to be able to continue doing some of this work online, but it's going to look different and it's going to feel different. I, I wonder if we could um, hear some of the work that you produced during this time. It's actually how I uh, first came to know of your work was the news piece that was written about mm -hmm. um, a kind of a living poem that you created, which uses um, numbers um, as a way to mark time and then an exploration from there of the experience of, of COVID. And I'm gonna let you set it up because you can do a much better job than I can. When I first encountered it, its title um, was, let me get uh, this back up in here. It's four thirty. It was four thirty-two dash six fifteen. But the title has evolved a lot yeah. since then. Tell us about this. Yeah. So uh, in the fall of last year, you know, the city of Edmonton officially reached a point where we had more than a thousand new cases of COVID per day. And compared to some other cities, that might be a lot less than compared to some cities that was a lot more. But for me, it was this moment of pure fear. You know, we didn't know when the vaccine was going to come. We knew the rollout might be a lot slower than we could have expected. Some were saying there wouldn't be, you know, even first doses guaranteed until 2023 for younger populations. There was a lot of fear in that moment. And as Poet Laureate, um, it became very clear to me that I had an obligation to process grief and trauma in ways that would alleviate or at least bear witness to the suffering of other people. You know, I really wanted people to know that I wasn't here, you know, writing about things that didn't matter to me, that this was personally affecting me as well as them and that I was seeing their struggle and why I wanted to honor that. So I decided on this project, which I called um, a living poem, ironically, because for every death in my province of Alberta, I added one word to this poem which by the way, makes editing it very difficult. Uh, but you know, the poem started out at 432 words and within the two weeks it took to edit the poem, 
um, and bring it to city council where I performed it for the first time, it had grown to 615 words. Then it grew to 719 words. Then it grew to 827 words, where, which is where it's at now. But it actually should be about 2,300 words. And part of the ongoing process of grieving has prevented me from updating this poem yet because, you know, it is very heavy. And so I also, um, you know, this poem is going to turn a year old uh, in a couple of months now. And I'm really hoping that, you know, we continue to do what we can to make sure that number doesn't continue to grow. Um, so I'm going to read uh, just the ending of this poem. Um, I was telling you before, the full thing takes over 20 minutes to read, uh, which I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, inflict on anyone, but the full version of the 827 words, which is the current title, is available um, on my website, which is not something I like saying, but it is there if you are curious and you would like to read it. Okay, I'm going to get out of the way here and give you the full Sounds screen, good. and then when you finish, I'll, I'll come back, okay? Sounds good. So this is the poem, 1827. Um, it is, this is the ending of that poem. Uh, the first offering was presented to the City of Edmonton Council, um, and it references uh, the ongoing election that's happening here in Edmonton, as well as local politics and national politics here in Canada. Every week I call my father and my doctor, both of whom care about my pancreas more than my pancreas cares about me and think about how saying I am disabled or queer or brown are all comorbidities. In the USA, citizens are furious that blaming fat people and demonizing their weight has allowed them to receive their first doses of vaccination sooner, arguing that disability makes fat people less worthy of life. They want me to believe it. My astronaut friend talks at length about Mars and for a second I daydream before I remember that she was told to wake up to the reality that this is her fault. In space-time's continual quest for meaning, the Mars rover perseverance touches down successfully and I weep knowing that children who worked their whole lives for this day are people too as they cheer in a NASA control room. My friend continues working as a citizen scientist and a doctor and I'm grateful that for some, hope is a lifeblood and not a luxury. Teens take up the mantle to uphold treaty and save the lives of those the city wishes didn't exist. The city wishes harder, shoves bodies into convention centers and hopes that the people with votes are appeased that no tax dollars have been wasted on housing. In fact, the city does not raise taxes so I lay awake and wonder which part of the Municipal Government Act Section 7 prevents the City of Edmonton from spending money in a crisis in the name of safety, health, and welfare. But then again, I've only spent 10 years studying politics, so what would a propertyless millennial like me know about it? Mayoral candidates start their long hauls to the finish line without once questioning their own acceptance of a system that hates them and wants them dead. I wait day by day for a candidate that believes in the future that I want and wonder if my mother could have predicted loneliness like this when she left India a lifetime ago. I think about Christmas. I think about Easter and rebirth. 
I think about cooking for the 365th day in a row and divorced wives stuck in houses as women's shelters reach capacity over and over again. I think about starvation. I think about home, how being human makes me worthy of at least one of these things. And mostly I think about death, how my faith in politics died first in a refrigerator truck and then a field hospital how deeply our love runs for our own imminent ecological collapse, how freeing up ICU beds is a success story and not a tragedy, how arrows on the floor are oppressive intervention and not simple courtesy, how tiki torch bearing white supremacists think it's their God-given right to sentence the rest of the world to death. What God will you face and how much will I pay in my people's blood to see it? I took one word for everybody in this province who died a preventable death and wrote a poem, 827 words, one for every child that grew and loved under the hands of collective negligence, how eloquent it will make me tomorrow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Nisha Patel reading the poem eight, 827, is that? 1827, eight, yes. 1827 uh, on COVID calls. Uh, Nisha Patel, the eighth poet laureate of Edmonton. That is dense and lyrical. And um, for me at least, and I'm not a, a poetry critic, um, but I had about 10 different emotions there in about a three minute span. So mm -hmm. for me, you accomplished what poetry must do. Uh, some of those images, particularly, I, I wonder if I could, I don't want you to give up all of your, your secrets as an artist, but somehow <laughs> juxtapo the juxtaposition in such a short period of time of the refrigerated, um, the refrigeration unit to deal with death and the ICU beds and the Mars rover, and I mean, that's a juxtaposition. Those two images together to me is incredibly powerful. You know, um, a lot of this poem came from my day-to-day -day life, you know, and my experience and a lot of my work does not try to take someone else's story, right? I don't believe in, um, you know, speaking for the voiceless because the voiceless are often people who just happen to have the resources to speak for themselves, right? So it's really about, um, you know, getting resources and platforms to the right people. So in my work, I really do try to focus, you know, on what I would say, because I don't speak for a nation. I don't speak for other people. I speak for myself. And if other people resonate with that, then that's what I try to do as a poet, right? That's the goal of poetry, to reach others um, and share the human experience with them. And I think that was also, you know, you asked about really key memories of the pandemic. There were there were some key memories around hearing that New York City was running out of refrigeration trucks to transport 
bodies from the COVID crisis, which was a place that was really hard hit for a long time. You know, at the same time, you know, many months later, there was the successful landing of Perseverance. And that was, again, just like a really beautiful moment, I think, in collective human history, you know, and it spoke to this era, I think, of like, wishfulness and longing um, towards science, which I, I don't think we always see these days, that mm -hmm. really, to me, was was quite beautiful and, and poetic in and of itself. I think space is always poetic for most people when we're not trying to, you know, capitalize on it or colonize it. But there's something really, really lonely and really exciting about, you know, sending astronauts and resources up into there. And I'm very lucky that um, my friend Shauna Pandya is a citizen scientist, astronaut, doctor, like she works a lot with NASA and NASA affiliates to, you know, one day maybe be ready for a mission somewhere else. She's she's on the ground doing a lot of this work. And she also works in a hospital and like seeing her refuse to lose hope throughout her career and throughout the pandemic is something that was incredibly meaningful for me um, as someone who was very emotionally affected by a lot of these things. I hadn't thought about that connection of the loneliness of space to the loneliness of lockdown, but that's again, another sort of juxtaposition which comes mm -hmm. out of the piece for me. Um, and I'm sure that was intentional, but you know, the, it, and also I, in, in my work, um, I interact with a lot of people who are historians of science and, and are critical mm -hmm. of science uh, in hopefully positive ways because we want mm -hmm. science to be equitable and honest. Um, but you also find a lot of people in this last 18 months kind of surprising themselves. They're like, go science. Like like in ways we hadn't since maybe we were in middle school or like the, the, mm -hmm. the wonder of science to bring, for example, vaccines to bear on mm -hmm. this pandemic in such a short time. But in but then the refrigerated mortuary trucks, on the other hand, um, I don't even know what to say about it. It's, it's just, there's a juxtaposition there, which is startling to me, I think. Yeah, and it's, it's something that like really continues. I think especially my grief has felt really elevated um, because my country of origin or ancestry, you know, India is a place that's facing some of the worst parts of the COVID crisis, right? Where um, at one point the crematoriums were melting because they were, mm. um, you know, on, they were burning for so many hours straight. They couldn't burn bodies fast enough, which is of course the the funeral tradition for, for many Hindus, you know, to, to be burned. And like that kind of thing was, was you know, um, paired with this like, these like little moments, you know, my grandparents, for instance, who who travel to India every year, who spent, you know, one of their first winters here in Canada um, in many years and how old their bones are, right? And how hard winter is on them, um, you know, and how staying here meant they were safe, but that no one got to see them even as, you know, whereas in India, they they have care, they have resources, they have people who are with them, um, you know, and, and things like that, like little moments, which, Again, some come as a product of incredible privilege and others are just part of my life that I've taken for granted. Talking with Nisha Patel on COVID calls today and talking about poetry for the pandemic, I wonder, maybe you tell me a little bit more about the challenge of the structure of that poem, 1827, because the structure of it 
as a living poem, it has to be dealt with. You have to reimagine mm -hmm. it, I guess, every time you decide to update it in terms of those those figures. What a challenge. Yeah. So the living poem, um, you know, this idea, this poem is alive. For every death from COVID in Alberta, a word is added as tribute. Um, you know, the last version I updated February 22nd. And, you know, it really, it started out in that that moment, the first time I was writing it, what was happening the first day I wrote that poem. And the start of the poem goes um, to talk about Lewis Hamilton. And I don't know if you follow Formula One motorsport, but Lewis Hamilton is uh, the only black race car driver right now in, in Formula One. And he's also the most decorated in Formula One history. And so he, um, you know, in that year, he, broke a lot of records. And I sat there as like both a fan of, of this man in a time of, you know, racial reckoning as well as capitalistic and, you know, um, COVID reckoning. And I was like, all of these conflicting things are affecting me. And one of the running themes in the poem is just kind of like what is happening um, in his career or how am I reacting to it? But I'm also reacting to other things that happen day by day. And I'm piecing them together to form kind of an ongoing cyclical narrative, right? So there's moments that are very specific in time where I talk about Christmas, um, you know, in which some of my aunts and uncles worked overtime um, to provide, you know, the resources that white families were given to be able to spend time with each other because we went into um you know a little bit of a lockdown over the holidays but our politicians then gave like two days off at christmas um so that people could see each other and i was like i don't think covid really cares about that right we were all unvaccinated at that time you know covid's not going to go on pause for two days but that concession was only made for christmas which is you know not a religious holiday for my family, right? Um, what about Ramadan? What about Diwali, right? And so like the poem talks about some of that. The poem talks about how much we rely on Uber Eats drivers, many of whom are racialized, right? Um, people staying at home, staying safe while, you know, their personal shoppers or their grocery deliverers are out there risking their lives. Um, it talks about uh, my friend who, you know, I love very dearly, who bought a house worth 22 times my life insurance, you know, um, because as an artist who is disabled, my life insurance policy maxes out, you know, at a certain amount mm -hmm. and no health insurance company um, is going to continue to give me more than that, which, by the way, is less than the poverty line for one year, you know. Um, in other places, you know, businesses are failing. Some restaurants rise to the occasion, putting COVID safety. Others close down, others open up. Um, and some of them are out here protesting COVID measures, even as people in their restaurants are getting sick. You know, so I talk about that. I talk about elderly folks in private care homes, which was a quite a, a pandemic crisis in and of itself. You know, people in long-term care facilities um, who are already very vulnerable, dying by the dozens, you know, and, and the people who care for them. And so everything kind of in this poem came out as a result of current events or very real emotional moments um, that happened. And, you know, I, I thought when the pandemic started, I was like, there's going to be a lot of really bad art that comes out of the pandemic for some people. And some of the movies, you know, that came out were like 
I think there's a movie about lockdown and Anne Hathaway is in it. And it came out like three or four months into the pandemic. Like Mm -hmm. we had no idea what was coming up ahead of us. And people were acting like they had been asked to sacrifice their life, except they were movie stars. They had huge places to quarantine in. They had every service still being offered. So like, I think it's, you know, and I say that as someone who who loves Anne Hathaway, right? Like there was these moments where that felt really surreal to me. And I was like, there's going to be some art that's not for me. And then there's going to be art that I try to make for for me and for myself and for for people who feel the same way I do. Um, And this wasn't the only pandemic poem that I wrote. Um, I wrote uh, a few other short ones and I wrote a poem in tribute of the first factory worker who died here in Alberta as well whose name was publicized because at no point did the government try to shut down this meat plant uh, packing facility, mm. you know, even as a COVID outbreak occurred. And so for me, this was a preventable death. And I felt that tragedy in ways that I didn't feel some of the other ones because there was a name and a face and a story, you know, and this woman could have been anyone's aunt, you know, could have been anyone's, you know, daughter, could have been anyone's mother, like just the horror and the tragedy of that was something that, you know, at times broke me down and writing was my only way through it. So this, the structure of the poem is really a result of how I processed trauma or, or sadness or um, pride or, you know, those emotions of the day. And I do think that like part of this poem is, you know, um, just a product of being able to reflect on these things. I wasn't working retail. I wasn't working in the service industry. You know, I didn't spend every single day in an ICU unit um, or as a nurse, like my cousin um, or my sister, like I I had the privilege of being able to reflect on this. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to use that time to say something maybe that, you know, could resonate with other people. Would it be possible for you to share it with us now? The original poem uh, for the the worker who passed mm-hmm. away. Yeah, I have it right here. Okay, I'm gonna get out of the way again. Yeah, no problem. What's this one titled? Uh, it's titled for Hip Buoy, which is the name of the worker. Okay. When the planes in Iran went down, They asked me not to write about politics, sing instead to grief, to tragedy, how such a lovely people of engineers and newlyweds could disappear in a blush of sunrise, a nation of words, and none of them asked to speak except to nod, and you sawed off fingers to point at no one, and still mourn wide enough for all the news stations to get a good story. When they asked me to write about it, I would rather have pulled my tongue into weeds than stand at the microphone, but here we are again, asking muddy bodies not to talk about politics like any of us can afford it. The real currency of a pandemic is how much you get to say anything else, something other than my mother going into work to build a pipeline or my father fixing white trucks that will march down the high level bridge. And isn't it funny? How many MLAs will never learn your name despite how often they'll wash their hands of it? How essential the temporary workers have become? How foreign the ghosts will be when all there's left are the ones who started it? 
I didn't believe in revenge before I learned that only the managers at the factory got the masks, that 24 years and a kill floor still didn't prepare anyone but some bosses in yachts for this. And somebody who was everyone's auntie could with a smile and a pocket of foil and be called anything less than brave. Hit buoy, I know what language you speak. I too come from lands of stomach and belly. We who do not wait for children to die in adult bodies before we bring them sweets, you deserve more than a poem and much more than a headline could ever give. Somewhere my father returns to work, wrapper in hand, and he says your name. My mother at home bends her head into steam, waiting for her son, and she says your name. I lie down with the guilt of an immigrant's daughter, safe at home, and I say your name. I keep it close to teeth, so when they ask me to write about loss and not politics, they will have to knock them out, and then I'll spill you into the sun again. Nisha Patel, the eighth poet laureate of Edmonton, Canada, reading on COVID calls. Thank you again for for sharing that with us. And um, only the managers at the factory got the masks. That really that hits hard, and and that's again a part of the of the pandemic that maybe um, people have moved on from because it was so unthinkable that. The I'm thinking of the United States here, but the the need for meat somehow became uh, such a national priority that the president created an executive order forcing um, those factories to remain open, yeah. knowing full well that people were getting sick and dying on that on that floor. Um, I just don't know how we reckon with that uh, in ways other than through art and. and ideally, hopefully, through litigation and through criminal proceedings, as far as I'm concerned. But while we wait for that, um, we have poetry like yours, I think. Yeah, I, I think in many ways, um, you know, art is is a way into conversation. It's a way into emotions that surpass language in some in some cases. And um, it's all part of, of, of the same ecosystem, right? Of us learning how to treat each other better, right? And hopefully those intentions, these individual intentions trickle up into policy and action, right? Um, and I, I, I really wanna hope that we've learned a lot as, as people, as individuals, but also as like governments full of systems that are broken um, about how we can do better um, and continue to, to do better. I want to ask you a little bit about performance because um, you were the 2019 uh, Canadian Individual Slam champion. That kind of performance, I mean, I, there have been documentaries about it. It can be very physical. Um, there's a, a sort of intimacy that has to be created with the audience. There's an electricity. Mm -hmm. It's the performance of the words. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not just the words on the paper. Unfortunately, too many people in school, their interaction with poetry is some words on a page and they're supposed to memorize yeah. them and, and that's it. And they don't get ever get a chance to be with a poet like you, who then brings the words into some other um, mm -hmm. way of experience for them. I, I, again, I wonder if you might just say a little bit about what it's been like to then have to move that online. Yeah, you know, um, being someone who does spoken word poetry, um, 
which is a very present art form. You you are in a moment, you share a moment in time and a physical space with someone. And taking that entire practice and moving it online was a huge struggle for me um, and for many people because for the first time, you know, I wasn't relying on getting energy back from the audience or getting, you know, um, the feeling and the emotions and even like modulating your voice, right? Like. I can't hear what it sounds like for you um, or what's comfortable for you. But in a big room, I can generally tell how loud I need to be or what parts I can say quietly. And there are quiet parts and loud parts together in a piece. And so that kind of thing was really tough to adjust to. Um, and, you know, it was it was terrifying. And those those early shows that I did, I performed probably over 50 times during the pandemic. And those early shows were not ones that I'm very proud of. I think they were scary moments where I was alone in my own art. Once again, like I had been right at the beginning of my career. And that was terrifying. Like that kind of solitude was really terrifying. And then I slowly learned to adapt, you know, my human needs for connection into the online space. And as I started to, you know, get a feel for, you know, what an online audience needs and how I can reach them, my performance became better, you know, and it was, uh, I even launched a book during the pandemic, which is, this is not like a shill for that, but I toured it online. You know, I, I, I took it on virtual tour and it, uh, you know, I did like 25 shows for this for this book. And, you know, I've been waiting my whole life to have a book out. And then I had it and I sat in my living room and I did these shows. And there were moments that to me were even more memorable than they would have been in person. Because suddenly I had people from across the country sitting in the same room to celebrate some of this work and to listen to it. And they were able to witness that moment together. So in the end, it did become just as effective in some ways, but again, like that physicality still exists um, and I miss it. And my body is going to have to readjust to being around people again. Um, you know, and that I think is going to be, again, like a, a relearning process similar to the physicality of going back to a sport or to, um, you know, any sort of movement practice or yoga or riding a bike. I can see what the audience would get from it because you're a very skilled uh, performer. And just the performance of the two poems that you shared here were, um, were fantastic. But I don't. But you you alluded to it a second ago. Like I don't know what you get back from it. You don't get to feed on that audience. Do you do things there in your setting that somehow gives you some some feedback, yeah. something to 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 go on? Because that's the juice yeah. that you need to then want to go back and create again. You know, I think um, some there have been more days that took more from me than I got back. Um, than there were days where I got more back. And like, I'll be honest with that as someone who experienced um, a very big and life changing decrease in my energy levels and increase in chronic fatigue and stuff like that. You know, some days like a performance would wipe me out and I would have no energy to cook or to clean or to do my other jobs. And it was just something that really didn't 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 keep me at the peak of my performance, um, you know, and that was like really really tough to manage the, those energy levels. But the moments where I did get energy back were moments where, you know, people expressed joy or gratitude or were grateful. And there's, mm. it's very easy to forget that 
you know, in person, there might be a room full of people and only two people will say something to you um, after a show. But in a Zoom call, for instance, or in an online space, often most people say something and they go, you know, thank you for this, or they show their virtual applause. And suddenly, you know, I actually did get more feedback than usual. And it was like, it was just a matter of processing it in different ways, teaching my body how to process that. Um, But also as someone who grew up partially on the internet, but not as online as kids are now, you know, it's it's funny because some of my closest friends, you know, I only talk to them through messengers and, and Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. And so in some ways, you know, I think I was better prepared to be online than some of my peers who have created practices that are very much um, rooted in in-person performance. That's it's so interesting. And I guess also you identify as a disabled person and um, people who have mobility disabilities have been able to experience your work as a performance that they, maybe they weren't able to. Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect of it as well. I don't know if that's um, been pointed out. I mean, if people have. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's in- a huge part of the arts. Um, this idea of accessible venues, not just mobility challenges, mm-hmm. but time challenges, right? People who are shift workers, people who don't always have Saturday nights free or Friday nights free, um, people who you know, have childcare needs. Suddenly all of these people sometimes are able to come to an event and enjoy it or people who can only come for 10 minutes and then can do other things. Um, and that's been massive. Uh, the artistic community, I think across Canada is a community that does have a higher instance of disability and illness um, and poverty, you know, and all of these things interact with each other and make it difficult for us to be artists. And so sharing art, not just with other artists who require accessibility, but with audiences who can now see what accessibility means is incredibly powerful. Almost up on time with my conversation with poet Nisha Patel, I want to make sure that people know where to get your work. Your first book of poetry, Coconut, is out. And in your bio, it says we can get it at Glass Bookshop. I hope we can also get it through online vendors as well or through your website. Yeah, anywhere that you can get books, um, it's available internationally, it's available um, locally, and it's available as an e-copy as well for those of you who are on the move. And we get that at nishapatel.ca, N-I-S-H-A-P-A-T-E-L.ca for people who want to get that book, myself among them. And as we close out, um, maybe you could give us a little bit, you transitioned out of this role as Poet Laureate. That takes some responsibility off your shoulders, but mm-hmm. um, pandemic is not over. I can see from today how rich your creativity is. Can you give us a sense of what's coming next? Yeah, I, I'm working on two manuscripts right now, um, artistically. So one is actually um, a big kind of, we call it found material or found poetry. Um, it's a dissection of my entire medical history through medical records. Um, and in some cases, I've like redacted info, I've selectively presented it, or I've turned them into kind of poetic forms or commentaries. Um, and it's kind of like a hybrid genre bending project, but it's like awesome. 200 pages right now and I'm trying to figure wow. out the second draft. Um, and I did that during the pandemic. Um, 
So, so that exists. And I'm also trying to write uh, a fictional novel for the first time, and that is not going well. Uh, I have hit major roadblocks on that. I've never written a novel before. So that one you might never see because I don't think all first novels should be published. But definitely I'm trying to finish this poetry manuscript, which will be a huge departure from my first book. Well, I'm sure the novel will be great. And even and even if we don't find it as a novel, I'm sure parts of that process will find its way into other yeah, work for that sure. you're doing. What a brave act to write a novel in the middle of a, in the middle of the pandemic. I uh, just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time daily. And today I've been talking to poet Nisha Patel, poet and future novelist uh, Nisha Patel. Um, Nisha, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing and performing for us. Just fantastic stuff and, and uh, so necessary to make sense of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.